you know, in Buddhism, there is this notion of the four noble truths. And the first noble truth is that life is filled with suffering, which is just a sucky statement. But it's an important assertion because what it speaks about is the universality of this experience. This being human is a hard thing. But the second noble truth is the avoidance of suffering increases suffering. And when you slow down and you show up, you run the risk of actually feeling all of it. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. My mom and I moved into a new home when I was 11. It was smaller than the previous house we had lived in with my sister and my father. But though it was nice and new and closer to my friends, it had a heaviness with it. It was like we just couldn't shake the weight of what had been some really difficult years following my parents' separation. There's a lot about that house and even that time in my life that I just don't remember. There is something that I remember very clearly. My mom had a framed quote on her dresser in her bedroom by Anais Nin. And the quote was, and the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. The quote always captured my attention and it felt profound, but I couldn't really make much sense of it as an 11 year old. And I regret never asking my mom why it was so important to her, but despite never really sitting with it or interpreting it, it stuck with me. And years later, like a long ago planted seed, it too grew into a bud within me. For so much of my professional life, well, and even my personal life, I was driven by the need to prove that I was enough. In the early days of Reboot in particular, most of my interactions were loaded with the high stakes stress, feeling like this was yet another moment where I could either be deemed worthy or unworthy of being part of something I cared so much about. And if I happened to prove it in that moment that I was worthy of belonging a bit longer, it was only a few moments before I looked on to the next moment where I'd have to prove it yet again. It was exhausting. And one day a colleague, Jim, grabbed me and said, dude, one day that question as to whether or not you were good enough, it'll just be plain boring to you. He was right. One day, years later, after years of work, practice, support, I faced one of those proving moments and showed up differently. I faced a common trigger, a chance to be in front of a large group of people representing Reboot. And all the usual feelings and panic started to bubble up within me. But then it just felt different. I felt like I saw a choice where previously one did not exist. I didn't have to remain tight in the bud to stay safe. In fact, that no longer seemed like a risk worth taking. I had a new choice, a new way forward. One that was driven by new questions. How do I bring more of myself to this moment? How do I show up? How do I show up as the best version of me? And in those questions, the proving became learning, growing, practicing, and the bud became a blossom. Lori Segal knows a lot about narratives. In her time as a reporter, including at CNN, she's always been able to find and share the compelling stories of the world around us, particularly those with people at the center. But while she was out gathering and sharing the narratives of others, she lost her own. But after faithful exploration and a conversation with the tree, and a lot of her own work in going within, she found the narrative of who is Lori. She joins Jerry to talk about her new book, Special Characters, and shares her own path to showing up, taking her seat, and blossoming for the world. Enjoy. At Reboot, we believe radical self-inquiry is an integral part of our continual practice of growth and self-actualization. Creating a practice of radical self-inquiry allows you to notice what happens in your experience from a different vantage point, one of curiosity. It is through radical self-inquiry that we learn to become more of ourselves, more like ourselves, more authentic, more human. We've developed an assortment of free self-guided email courses to support you in taking a deeper dive into radical self-inquiry. Whether you're looking to revamp your relationship to work, better understand your anxiety, explore your shadow side, reevaluate your co-founder relationship, or become a better listener. We've got you covered. All of our courses offer valuable content and prompts for reflection and journaling on a personal, professional, and practical level. 
valuable for any leader at any stage. Explore our full suite of free course offerings at reboot.io slash resources. Well, hi there. How are you? Oh, it's so good to see you. You too. Why don't you take a minute, just introduce yourself. We'll surprise folks. Well, I'm Lori Siegel. I um, created a company called Dot Dot Dot. Now we just launched something called D3, which uh, is covering Web3 and um, and culture. But before that, I have covered technology my whole career at, at both CNN and 60 Minutes. And I don't know. I love looking for interesting stories and talking to weird people. And uh, and and hence you're talking to me. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, like the good kind of weird. I love the good kind of weird. Good weird is the story of my life, you know? <laughs> well, and full disclosure, we are friends as well. Mm-hmm. This is true. You And, and you have had a, a big impact on my career. So full disclosure, mm-hmm. you've, you've um, always been a guiding force for me. So it's, I think I joked, it's fun to be on the other side of this, but like scary as well, because I know your power. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll use it gently. No. Um, yeah, I'm super excited to be with you today. You've got a new book coming out uh, called Special Characters, which I was fortunate enough to get an advanced copy of. Thank you. And um, as I was saying to you just before we hit the record, I read it in the night. And I really, really appreciate this question you asked me because I can feel it, you know, as a as an author myself. Did you like it? I want to tell you that I loved it. And I I loved it uh, for two reasons. One, there's this beautiful, fun experience of just seeing so many characters that I knew and know and the interweaving of characters. Like I had no idea that Dennis Crowley, you know, the co-founder of Foursquare was a a mutual connection and actually how we originally met. You must've told me that, but I must've forgotten. Yeah. But, but the other piece that really moved me was um, the degree to which Lori showed up. You know, I think back to some of the conversations we've had where I, you know, maybe leaned a little too heavily and said to you on camera, show up. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So the first thing I want to tell you is you showed up. Hmm. That means, and, I mean, God, that means a lot to me. Um, yeah, that means a lot to me. Yeah. You know, um, a, as I've shared with you both on camera, when we did that story for mm-hmm. the short series you did for CNN, Mostly Human is the, the, mm-hmm. the series. Um, the thing that that we all need to do, because you asked me quite poignantly at that time, what can we do to help people who are struggling? And I vehemently said to you, show up. Mm-hmm. And when when those who hold power or those who hold the platform or those who hold a bullhorn or the bully pulpit, Mm-hmm. When they don't show up, we all suffer. Yeah. So the greatest thing I can tell you is you showed up in the book. Oh, that's the biggest compliment you could give me. I Because I think um, that moment uh, was so important for me, right? I, I just remember we were shooting the series and we were sitting and I was asking you about um, mental health and depression in the entrepreneurial world. And, and uh, when Roxy, who was our director at the time, was like, ask Lori some questions. I was like, oh, God, no. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I just remember how fiercely it hit me when you just said show up. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I don't you know this. It it hit me in a different way. I think I was going through so much at CNN and and trying to figure out who I was and wanted to be. Um, and what I stood for um, in an evolving media landscape and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but it was, you know, it was incredibly powerful, those words. And I feel like I kind of live and, and die by those words. I think the, the dot, dot, dot of that is right. Is showing up is so painful sometimes, right? Like, you know, I've since left um, some of those jobs, I've gone and done a bunch of other things and my God, is that painful, but it feels authentic. So um yeah, I, I really appreciate those words at the time, which I 
can't believe I started crying on camera. That's my only time I've ever started crying on camera. And I've been doing it for 10 years, you know, um, but I got jerried, you know, what can I say? You got jerried. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about that moment. And, and you said it landed so powerfully for you. Mm-hmm. Why? No, I think I had been, um, I had been so scrappy. When you read the book, you'll see this. Like I was so scrappy my whole career, fighting right. for stories, fighting to get people to pay attention, whether it was entrepreneurs no one cared about at the time or ideas no one cared about at the time, or whether it was, you know, really important topics like like revenge porn and non-consensual pornography and saying, hey, the world's got to pay attention to this. And and that didn't just come. That meant me knocking down the executive's doors and saying, we've got to pay attention and be going around when people said no, when people always said no, you know, like just trying to figure out the ways to get to yes. That was always what I believed in and, and what guided me. And I think at that point, um, because I had been able to convince Jeff Zucker, who was my mentor, um, to, to be able to give me an opportunity to do a show. I had pitched it to him on a PowerPoint and I, and it, it was my thesis of technology is humanity and we need to start there. And it felt like the first time I was able to really be me on camera, you know, cause I didn't start out a normal TV reporter, right? I always felt like a fraud. You know, when I would look in camera, I'd be like, back to you, Wolf Blitzer, you know, like I love Wolf, but it just didn't feel like me, right? I loved being much more casual and conversational and in the field. And it felt more authentic to me. So um, there was this tension at the time because the network was also changing. It was um, more talking heads and all this kind of stuff. And technology was changing. I had covered these kind of misfits who were dreamers and had this utopian vision for the future and things were getting super weird and complicated and all of these things were happening. And I was trying to figure out my place in media and what I wanted because I didn't want to go be a traditional news anchor. And I also didn't just want to cover the hot new app anymore. I was so bored by just that. You know, and I think personally, I, um, I was trying to make hard decisions in my personal life too. And, and I think I was so easy to do the script, right? Of like, you know, how you always say, how are you? And everyone's like, oh, I'm good. I think I did that at the beginning of this call. Yeah. So, yep. 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 <laughs> um, you know, and I think when you just looked at me and we had been talking about mental health and I've been doing it from a certain angle, which is, yes, of course, I deeply care about it. But when you said that to me in that way, it was very much, you know, show up and like face your own stuff, try to figure out what you want. And that was a day that I started thinking about why does mental health and all this stuff matter to me? What does authenticity media mean to me? And, and what kind of risk am I willing to take to go accomplish that? And I think also I thought about should I break up with my boyfriend too? I think I think that was also <laughs> truthfully part of that when you were like, show up. But I just think it was a super powerful moment that I, I just remember so clearly. And I think also people, when that came out, I remember at the time my boss was like, oh, you should take this out. It makes you look, you know, makes you look bad. Um, because I was crying on camera and, and my instincts, which I always said, trust in my instincts editorially. So don't take that part out. That's real. If like you mm-hmm. screamed at me, be real. Yeah. And, and I kept it in. And it's the one to this day people still ask me about, you know? Yeah. So it was, it was a pretty defining moment when I look back on it. Yeah. Well, you know, I, rereading that section and, and, reliving, if you will, that experience of us, I'll put a little bit more context in it. I remember our first conversation about potentially participating in that story. And, Mm -hmm. you know, on my end, I was in my house in Boulder and I was standing on the back porch and I was talking to, in my mind, yet another reporter who was Uh intending to do a very quick, um, well-intentioned, but not really in-depth story about depression and the mental health struggles that entrepreneurs go through. Mm -hmm. And I was just tired of it. I was tired of people not being real. And you made a promise to me in that call, which was that you were going to treat it seriously. Mm -hmm. And I believed you. And so then when we set up the time to talk, I... I think you showed up even before that moment in our conversation, you were really there. You were asking Mm -hmm. questions from your heart 
it wasn't, you know, what I often will call the kabuki theater mm -hmm. of performative, you know, let me care. And, you know, in, in, in reading your book, I got a deeper appreciation for how difficult it must have been to navigate the space, to navigate your way into arguably one of the most powerful news media organizations in history. Yeah. And and to get screen time, to get to to get <laughs> time. Yeah. And I saw you navigating and and like seeing an opening and wedging yourself in and trying <laughs> to find a way. So I want you to know that the times in which you did not show up, I understand. Yeah. Right? I appreciate that. Yeah. Your, when your boss said that, they were just trying to protect you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's always that, like, you know, you fall into this box when you're on TV and all of it. You fall into this box of what you should, you know, what, this is what works. This is what people know works. This is what you wear. That This is what you look like. This is how you say back to you, Wolf. You know, this is just how things work. And I just like the reason I loved entrepreneurs back in the day is it was like a bunch of weirdos that didn't just accept, well, this is just how things work. And so I never quite fit with it. And, and it just, I just started outgrowing it. Mm -hmm. But I really, there's always this part of me that wanted to fit with it too, you know, mm -hmm. and I had had a lot of success in it. And, and I was proud of a lot of the stuff I did do. I mean, I got to pitch a 20, 25 minute show like on depression when people weren't really talking about the stuff and I got to give it the, the attention it deserved. And, and so, you know, I, I was always, I was always just figuring out the right doors to go into at CNN, right. And the right the right way to go about things because I think people could look and say, Oh, she was, I was a senior technology correspondent at CNN for a decade. I created our startup beat there. It's a nice line, right? But really what that means is I was a, a production assistant that in my free time was paying my way to South by Southwest when I probably couldn't afford it and was pretending to be a producer when I was actually just a production assistant and convincing Ed Williams and mm. Dennis Crowley and all those people to go on camera with me and was the mm. first to give them airtime and convince bosses in other ways to put mm. them on. And, and then I wrote my own job description for a startup reporter and not because I just had crazy, I was crazy fearless because a female mentor said to me, you're already doing this, like grow some Lori, you know, right. do it. Right. Um, and, and so I think it looked, it could look really easy from the outside, but it just, it was really navigating big media. It was my dream until it wasn't because now I have all these new dreams, but it was not for the faint of heart. I knocked on every door and anytime a door closed, I would go to the next door, you know? So right. it was, I don't know. It, it was, Definitely not what you saw on the outside, which was me on camera interviewing entrepreneurs. There's yeah. a lot that went into a lot of that stuff in that sense. Yeah. Right. And 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 you see that clearly. You see mm -hmm. the determination and the desire to find a way in in so many ways. And there's a moment though in which after you document and you tell the story of of that interview that we did. And you said something to the effect of leaving Jerry's office, I felt an overwhelming desire to get to know myself better, mm -hmm. to take better care of myself. I swore to retain Jerry's truth as they integrated back into the busy streets. And then you went on a walk. What did you get to know about yourself then? <laughs> um, oh, man. Well, you know, I was moving so fast when we first met. That doesn't mean I'm not moving fast now. I'm moving fast in a different way. Mm -hmm. But I was moving so fast. It was hard for anything to stick. And mm -hmm. I had this ability. I've always had this ability to read the room, mm -hmm. to understand what people are thinking. And it was my journalistic superpower, right? To, mm -hmm. to be able to ask questions and get answers and all this kind of stuff. But I didn't slow down. And I think in the last years, ever since we met, I, I haven't slowed down, you know, on, on paper, but metaphorically, I've, I've slowed down. I, um, I think I learned a lot about why I was attracted to certain stories, right? Like why I loved the misfit type weirdo type folks or why I was attracted to stories of mental health why I wanted to always take a humanity first approach to reporting. I think there was a lot of pain, truth be told, right? That 
that once I, I slowed down a bit and I started talking and I wrote, started writing again, I don't drink anymore. I, I really took some, some steps in my life, change it and confront some of these things. I think I learned that I had not confronted a lot of stuff that I channeled a lot of, I channeled through storytelling and didn't look at my own world. And I think there was a lot of pain there. And I think being able to confront some of it to understand my family dynamics, which you read about a little bit in the book. I don't like do a whole family tell all. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's this book right now, you know, mm-hmm. but, but because of how I grew up and, and some of the things I, I faced, you know, why I am the way I am. You said to me on, um, when we were sitting on that, that couch, like, why does mental health matter to you? And I gave you a line, which wasn't entirely untrue, which is, you know, I've interviewed a lot of these entrepreneurs and families of entrepreneurs and folks who have um, ended their lives. And we've got to talk about this. And you were like, well, that's like kind of bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember I was like, oh God. <laughs> um, and then I thought about like mental health in my family and my aunt who's schizophrenic and my other aunt who's an alcoholic. I mean, she was married to Ark Arfunkel back in the day and had this crazy life, but as wonderful as she could be, she could be that dark. Mm-hmm. And I think I always struggled between like being able to orbit these worlds and then have to deal with my own darkness a little. And I think I was able to deal with my own darkness. Like, I think I was able to look at it and confront it and understand where a lot of it came from. Mm-hmm. When I talked about getting to know myself better, like why was I making certain choices? And that's been hard work. That's stuff I, I still work on every day, but it started around that time, you know, which was just so funny because I could always be so high functioning in so many ways <laughs> and successful in so many very external ways. But then I think there was a lot that I struggled with internally. There's a there's a common experience I think that people have, which is what you're describing as the dark stuff. Mm-hmm. It's in all of our lives. Right. And what happens is, you know, we don't, we don't set about uh, with the intention of creating a Kabuki theater. Mm-hmm. We learn it as children. Yeah as a way to um, uh, not touch the hard stuff. Yeah. And one of the things that's really powerful is, you know, in Buddhism, there is this notion of the four noble truths. And the first noble truth is that life is filled with suffering, which is just a sucky statement. I mean, it just, <laughs> it's so nihilistic. It's not the quote on my wall, but right. I understand. <laughs> right. Right. But it's an important assertion because what it, yeah. what it speaks about is the universality of this experience. This being yeah. human is a hard mm-hmm. thing. Totally. But totally. the second noble truth is the implicit in that sort of motion that you were going through, which is that um, avoidance of suffering increases suffering. Hmm. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, when, when, when you speed through your life, when you, well, the opposite, when you slow down and you show up, you run the risk of actually feeling all of it. Oh yeah. I think that's, I think I would, I would describe, I would describe that as like, I, I remember I just went through a big, you know, deciding I was going to leave, um, the job at CNN, which is scary. You know, you get to the top of your game, right? You're, mm-hmm. you get, I was their senior technology correspondent there. I'd interviewed Zuckerberg like three or four times that year. I was the only person you talked to. I'd interviewed everyone. I, I'd done everything I could do. I didn't want to become an anchor. And I wanted to go, really, really wanted to go. Um, and I was terrified. And you read in the book, you're actually a big part of helping mm-hmm. me make that, that push. But like, I, I remember at the time I also decided to confront a lot of family stuff and I had stopped drinking, which um, if I was just using anything for anxiety or for being able to kind of interact and take off some of the pressure. And I quit the job. I stopped drinking. I like took all of my crutches and I just like took them away. And I was like, oh, this is going to be good. These are all the things I wanted to do. And it was just like, it was painful at the time, right? It was just like, it felt even more painful um, before it got better, before I, you know, got to do the things that I always wanted to do and I'd had the courage to do it and before I um, really could show up. But but it took, I think it almost, 
the, the misconception is that you do the things you're supposed to do and you show up and then all of a sudden things are great. It's like, no, no, then you have to go confront all the stuff you were avoiding. Uh, <laughs> so I did that and, you know, and I still do that, but at least I'm, I'm present for that, you know, right. which I don't think I was um, when you talk about showing up years ago. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think one of the uh, first questions you asked me in that uh, first interview that we did um, which I was rereading the passage again this morning. And you asked me about what, what's the myth of success? And I said that it brings mm -hmm. happiness. <laughs> well, you know, the other myth is the myth of slowing down and looking at your life is that somehow your life is going to be magically better. Yeah. Um, and I think you've just said it really well. It's like, no, now mm -hmm. you actually begin. That's right. And you begin to do the work uh, of, of your, of your life. I, I want to connect it back though to because the other thing you did was you came to one of our boot camps, uh -huh. and and I think this is a detail you did not put in the book, but I remember mm -hmm. you showed up into the mountains of Colorado with boots that had high heels, maybe I mean, even just, stiletto heels. Yes, I did. I think I showed up like very confused by the whole weather situation that that was happening where all these other people were. Right. But the, but, but what's, what's remarkable is you were confused by the weather, but you weren't confused by the assignment to go out into the woods and talk to a tree. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, I, I wonder, it's like, I have this book coming out where I talk about like talking to a tree and quitting my job. And I'm like, Oh, this is going to go great. I can't wait. Like, I'm totally going to hide under a rock when it comes out for a bit, but no, it was this crazy experience. And I, you know, me, I'm like, totally not woo woo. You know, like, right. You're not, you're like, definitely not woo woo. <laughs> you know, like I wore heels to the mountains. Um, right. But, um, but yeah, it was just crazy. I remember because it, I just feel like you must have known some, you had sent me this email months before that was like, you should come to this retreat. Um, and, and I'm so used to going as like a journalist to anything and being on the other side of it. But you were like, you're not, don't come as a journalist, which is just like, the words don't come as a journalist. I didn't even know how to process those, but it was the first, the beginning of me processing don't come as a journalist. Right. And, and me being able to show up just as me. And I went there and it just happened to be that the timing this is so inside baseball, like newsroom, but like the timing was um, my contract at CNN. They wanted to renegotiate it. They wanted me to stay. And I had to make a decision by that Monday right? It was right. like reload a weekend or whatever it was to stay or go and leave CNN. Leave, and, and I know maybe for folks listening, it's like, that's not that big of a deal. But for me, it was my identity. It's how I grew up. This is where I, you know, this was my whole life was my, my job to some degree and what I built there. And I kept thinking, who am I without this? But I, I really, really wanted um, to take the jump and start my own thing. And I wasn't sure I had the courage to do it. And I also had no idea how to do it. I've interviewed most successful entrepreneurs. And even then that doesn't make me one, um, you know, and I, I remember going and being, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, but like just sitting, I just remember walking in um, and the assignment was like, does my life have meaning or something? I wrote some lines down, literally praying. I didn't have to read any of this out loud. And I walked in and I saw all these people that I've interviewed throughout my career you know, and who I was like very, I was friendly with and a very, um, I'm the, the power is I'm the journalist, you're the entrepreneur, you know, in, in this certain dynamic. And all of a sudden I was supposed to like, it was very cold and I was supposed to read about my feelings to these people. And I was just like, this is, this is really uncomfortable. <laughs> um, but it was really powerful. And I, and I think I let myself kind of get into it, which I, I think in, in the past, I probably wouldn't have, I would have made jokes and I would have, you know, not really allowed it to happen. And, and one of the most powerful things, I mean, there were so many powerful things that happened those couple days, but it was almost just like this extraordinary reset of like, well, who are you now? What do you want? And one of the, the, the assignments was to go talk to trees. And I was just like, I can't, like, I just done so many things in my career, but like talking to a tree is not something I've like mm -hmm. infiltrated hacker conferences. I've been chased by like mm -hmm. uh, maybe a member of ISIS. Like I've, I've done a lot of things, but like talking to a tree in the like in the wilderness is just not on the list for me. Um, right. And the irony is the tree talked back. 
That's exactly right. Like it was so crazy. I had this like weird religious experience. I was so, I like walked out and like, you know, like was at this tree and I was just, and I was feeling so much pain and it was weird because I was a little bit nervous because I'd gone away from the group and you can't really see your way back. And, and I had found this tree and I'm like, okay, Siegel, just like do the assignment. Right. But then like something changed and was looking at this like beautiful tree that like, it looked so worn and old. And I just thought like, you know, some would say you're, you're old and, but I think you're like just beginning. There was just like this beautiful moment. And, um, and I just like started crying. I was thinking about all of these things about, um, you know, my parents, when I was younger, had a really nasty divorce and I didn't see my dad as much and all this stuff. And I was thinking about all these things while sitting across from like a tree that I think really symbolized life and birth and all of these incredible things. And it was, it was really a nice moment. I realized I was sitting there, standing there for a while. And there were all these cool metaphors because the snow, I'd never, such a weird thing to say, but like, I'd never heard the sound of snow falling, but it was so silent for the first time in my life. Like I heard the sound of snow falling. And I, I think that was just something like, I was just quiet. Like my brain was quiet for the first time. And and that's something that doesn't happen to me too often. And, and there was something about finding the path back, right. Even though I didn't really know what the path was, I was just going to find it and someone else could follow if they wanted to. And that felt like a really good metaphor for what I wanted to do, which was, I wanted to go out and create a better type of media company. And I wanted to take the jump and I, I wanted to have the courage to do it. And I also wanted to think about how I could confront some of my own stuff and, um, and be nicer to the little girl in me. And, and I think all of that happened at that tree. So it was, it was such an interesting experience. And I, and I was, I, when I walked back, I said, okay, I get it, you know, but it, it really like that whole weekend, just so many of the things that we did, it just forces you out of your narrative. And I remember um, we did that thing where we put things we wanted to just throw away. And I wanted I'm such a good storyteller and maybe like not right now. Cause it's about me. And when I tell my own story, I ramble and I'm terrible, but you know, like I'm, I'm generally a good storyteller. That's what I do. But I think sometimes I get stuck in the narrative, even when it came to my own life and my own, whatever. And like, I'm Lori from CNN or I'm this, or this is how I was raised. And that's why I'm this way. And sometimes you just forget the meaning behind all those words, you know, well, what is it that you actually are? What do you really mean? And what do you really want? And I remember I threw away, I uh, burned the word narrative in the fire while we were there. And it felt really good just to kind of throw it all out. So it was, it was definitely a really important weekend. And then I went back and I talked to Jeff uh, and I quit my job. Uh, It was a, it was a pretty special experience. And and then none of the things that have happened, I mean, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about my book. None of that would have happened had I stayed in the same place, you know? It's, um, I'm sitting here thinking about this uh, wonderful book I read in high school um, called Zorba the Greek. And everybody Mm -hmm. tends to know the movie with Anthony Quinn. But one of the more important uh, aspects of that book is um, there's a, the basic story is this unnamed narrator, this writer Uh, goes to a Greek island. He's inherited or he purchases, I can't remember, a little mine. And he meets this larger-than-life character, Zorba. Mm -hmm. And it's a struggle between these sort of two characters in a a way where Zorba is all feeling and all sensibility. And at one point, Zorba accuses the narrator. He says something like this. He says, boss, you're the kind of person who'd rather read about making love than making love. <laughs> and, you know, it, you know, we laugh, Laurie, but, but the truth of the matter is when, when, when we hide behind the theater of what our life is supposed to be, we run the risk of being that writer who'd rather read about making love than making love. Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I just think like I was holding on so tightly to this thing that I was supposed to want and to the thing that looked good and the thing that felt safe. 
And I wanted to like write my own story, right? Like I just wanted to, you know, do those hard things. But I think you're right. I even felt like that too, to be honest with you as a, you know, with what I'm doing now, like I, I really wanted, instead of just telling other people's stories, which I love telling other people's stories, I wanted to create a way to be able to, how do I say this? To be in the arena. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like yeah. I just, you know, I just didn't want to look from afar and peer, peer at people the rest of my life. Even if I did it in a way that was humane and that I was proud of, you know, I, I, I just wanted to be in the arena and I wanted to roll up my sleeves and I wanted to say, I want to build my own thing where I can peer at people and do this kind of thing the way that I believe it should be done. And it's messy and trying to do that has been hard, although I know we've made a lot of progress, but it's, it's, um, I, I do believe that it's a lot more true than, you know, talking or writing about making love and making love, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you can be, when I gave you that admonition to show up, um, it also came from a place in my own life where, where I had spent many years not showing up. Mm-hmm you know, pretending to be there and not really being there, you know, and people will say, well, Jerry, you know, what do you do that's so different? Well, I actually am here. Mm-hmm. And I am fully present to my life. Yeah. And that means being fully present to the mess. Yeah, right. right? You know, let's, let's talk about that transition. So you leave CNN and mm-hmm. you and Derek and, you know, an assortment of other misfits, right? <laughs> Derek yeah. Dodge is your co-founder, right? Um, you you come together and it's like, hey, kids, we're going to put on a show and it's hard. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like we're going to put on a show. First act is a global pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> that's right so let's 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 set the stage let's talk about the time so yeah. this is like fall of 2019 Lori's not gonna start a company if like if the stakes right. aren't as high as hell you know? right 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 yeah did, we, we launched we did you know I, I left cnn in february of 2019 i decided first of all i wanted to write this book because it was my ability to tell my own story and just a quick side note to that i remember the real I have to write this book came and in a moment that's like, I'm not, I don't know if I'm proud of this moment or just like, of course, Siegel, but like, you know, I built our startup beat at CNN. I took it from zero to what it was. You know, I, I'd invested in all this stuff. I had shaped a conversation on a lot of these things. Uh, I'd grown up with a lot of these people. I've asked a lot of these people challenging questions. I, I interviewed Mark Zuckerberg during Cambridge Analytica. I was, I was his on-camera, I'm sorry, interview, right? But the reason I got that interview was... I had, it was during Cambridge Analytica and I remember, um, you know, no one had heard from any Facebook executives and people were like, where are they? You know, and, and this Cambridge Analytica was important because it was a moment in time where say like normal people, not just tech people were like, what the hell is Facebook doing with my data? Like what is happening? And it had gone really mainstream. This was a scandal that was just huge. And no one knew where Mark and Cheryl were. Like, why weren't they talking? And I think they thought of knowing Facebook and their strategy, they didn't think they were waiting to see if it would blow over. But I had done so much digging and I rolled up my sleeves and I was like, all right, let's find out what's happening inside Facebook. And, you know, I found out what people were saying. I had this really good exclusive color of what was actually happening inside. And I went on to go on TV. I shouldn't say this, but there's, it, was def- it was with an anchor who was very much like the woman who supports women, but like only if you have tons of Twitter followers kind of thing. <laughs> and, um, and I was going on with her and at the same time, they're like, okay, well, I won't say his name. I'll call him James. They're like, we're going to put James on with you. Like James like had never covered tech, but he recently had an interest in it and a very loud voice. Right. And, and I was very used to people coming in with very loud voices to like kind of speak over and whatnot. And remember being on with him and he just spoke the whole time. He had no information. He just had like opinions. It was opinion-based journalism. He had no idea what was happening inside the company, what people were saying. And he just talked and talked and, you know, in television, he got two or three minutes to say everything. It's hard. And so with 30 seconds to go, she came to me and she said, um, okay, Lori, what are people saying inside? And so I tried to speak and she's like, oh, we gotta, we gotta go. And I just remember being so frustrated. I was like, there's always some dude to speak over me. I've been doing this for so long. You know, I've been doing this for like a decade at this point, right? Mm. And um, and as I walked away, I was just like, fuck it. I'm going to book Mark. He should talk. He he really should talk right now. He has a responsibility as a leader. 
And I went over to my desk. And by the way, this is not how most journals work. Just like, so your audience knows, like they have booking departments and all this kind of stuff. That is never how I worked. I was always like booking myself. And um, I messaged Mark on Facebook and I said, you have a responsibility as a leader to speak. And we had enough friends in common that I knew. And, um, and I saw that he saw it and I followed up and all these kinds of things. And, you know, the next thing, and it wasn't easy, but I, I got on the phone with his head of PR. He said, you got to let me know there's a storm coming in. And Mark saw the, the message and long story short, I got the interview, not without a lot of hustle, you know, and, uh, and went out and interviewed him. And it was a big moment, I think in tech and society, but all that great. Cool. Laura, you got a great interview. You got a big interview. The thing that pissed me off and the reason I wrote the book, Jerry, <laughs> is, you know, and this is probably an ego thing, but I remember there was a wired story that came out later about the market, about Cambridge Analytica and the chaos inside Facebook. And the writer in it actually didn't ask me for comment or anything like that, but the writer characterized me, um, talked a lot about the behind the scenes there. And he characterized me as just this reporter who was summoned to campus, sure. you know? Yeah. And, you know, for me, I have fought, you'll read this book. I'm so scrappy. I mean, it's, it's almost like painful at some point. It's like, stop being a scrappy evil. like let people do this, <laughs> you know, like it's get it's a little like upsetting, like, but I have fought my whole career. Right. And, and I was just so annoyed. This is like a dude, right. Like right. talking about how I just was like summoned, like I'm some kind of like talent, just summoned to do your homework tech people. Right. And he just pissed me off. And I was mm-hmm. just like, you know what? I want to write a book. And I want to set the record straight and not set the record straight in a, in a way of like, um, you know, oh, I, I got this or whatever it was, but it was, it was very much, I wanted to put my stake in the ground and show that I was a part of this thing and that I had something to say. And I, and I knew that a lot of the human questions got lost and I knew that this was an exciting time. And, and I wanted my voice in there. I wanted to speak for myself and not just be the person that was summoned these people and so that's so that happened and I was like I'm gonna write a book you know that was my tangent on that and I went and I sold the book I wrote I worked on that proposal all summer and I also worked to build a company that would talk about technology and humanity and at the same time we sold the book Derek and I launched dot 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 that was in um I sold the book in October and then dot 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 launched in December of you know 2019 with a couple different folks and um and then the pandemic happened and you know we for a long time operated as production company selling shows doing books uh, podcasts you are my podcast first contact but i always wanted to do something bigger than that too you know i think for me it was that's what we needed to do at the time in order to survive right Mm -hmm. The, the pandemic and so we've just recently um launched a network to cover web three, because I, I feel the same sense of responsibility I did back in 2009, mm. where all these new players are coming and no one understands anything about it. And there, you know, we have talking about crypto and the metaverse and um, NFTs, and, and we need someone to humanize this and talk about why it actually matters. Um, and I, I want to build a network to do that. And why can't I do that? You know, so that's, that's the, that's the latest and we're calling it D3. So it's, it's been a journey and it has not been overnight, you know, and it still isn't uh, overnight. You know, it's certainly a process, but I'll tell you, like the one thing that I've never done is look back and say, I wish I was still in my senior technology correspondent position at CNN. Well, that, that makes me happy because I was, after reading some of this, I was uh-huh. a little nervous is like, did I convince her? No, I um, I want to I want to go back though to that experience of these are my words, not yours. Mm-hmm. Um, the writer kind of dismissively describing mm-hmm. you um, as having been summoned, and the thing that that struck me, um, and, and and in some ways I'm going to tie together Lori I've known, the Lori I came to know in reading your story. The Lori who showed up in that interview, the Lori who shows up now every day, um, to to the girl in Atlanta where you were growing up, mm-hmm. I think that it feels like that there's been a uh, a theme 
of people underestimating you and dismissing you. And it could be gender-based, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's always gender-based. And in my experience of my friend, Lori, um, you are not to be underestimated. <laughs> I appreciate and, that. And even, even if you struggle, Lori, it doesn't mean that you're not on, on the right path. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, I think it does. And, and I think, I think for me, I've always felt like I was fighting against something, right? Like mm-hmm. even at, at CNN, there was this, like, I, there was just like this, I had a lot of support from a lot of great people. And then there was also the, like, no matter what we were going to do, we were going to be underestimated. I was not, you know, it, there was a mm-hmm. bit of a boys club there. And that was really tough. You know, although I did have a lot of mentors, but, you know, I do think sometimes I really underestimate myself or I, I hesitate with myself and that comes through. I can be talking to some of the most powerful people. I can have more support from the players in the world. And sometimes I can get in my own way yeah, because yeah. I don't believe it. And I don't know where that comes from. I do think I was a bit of an oddball. I was like the only Jewish girl at a very Christian conservative Southern school. I've always been a bit of like an outsider no matter what community I went into. But I think I sometimes had some issues with underestimating myself or not having the courage to step into myself. You call it take your seat, but I, I really, I, I think that's a real thing. I, I, I think as your friend and, and itinerant coach now and then, I would say mm-hmm. that that's true. I have seen yeah. you do that. And so in addition to show up, I'm going to leave you with another uh observation and this comes from my teacher and friend parker palmer who once wrote in in a book nothing is as tragic as when we are complicit in our own diminishment (laughs) wow yeah you know you're you're embarking on an extraordinary journey you and derek you're 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 trying to will into being the magical, the truly magical unicorn of a new company. Mm-hmm. Trying to create something and pivot left, pivot right. We're going to go here. We're going to go there. Right. That's normal. Mm-hmm. What is extraordinary here is um, to try to do this in a way where you continually show up and are not complicit in your own diminishment. Yeah. You know, you got mm-hmm. this. You got this. So I'm going to tape you saying you got this and I'm going to literally just like wake <laughs> up every morning and it's going to be repeating Jerry like you got this. You got well, this. No, but but in all seriousness, you know, I love the fact that every now and then you would reference the people who have sort of uh been at your side. Mhm. Yeah, you know, I am um I'm so lucky. I have I think you're the one that told me about this like the board of Lori. Yeah. Like I've got such an incredible, I've got pretty incredible people on that board. You know, I, I count you on the board. So please don't resign anytime soon from the board of Lori because she can't take it. But I'm, I'm pretty lucky in that regard. And I think I'm set up. Um, if, I, if I can get out of my own way, I'm set up for it. If that makes sense. It, it, it does. And in that way, you're actually quite human. Yeah. In fact, that's a, that's a that's another universal experience, which is that we all get in our own way. I'll, I'll close with this: the thing that that people often ask me, well, you know, Jerry, how do you get people to do what you do and all this stuff? It's I stay in touch with my messiness. Mm-hmm. I stay in touch with my my humanity, yeah. and then. You know, I just listen from that space. And yeah. and the world is a lot better when you lead yeah. and you tell stories from that space. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Well, Lori, I want to thank you for, for coming on and spending time together. And, you know, aside from the personal just delight of being together, I'm just really happy for you and really the best of luck with all of this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcasts to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. How long till my soul gets it right? Can any human being ever reach that kind of light? I call on the resting soul of Galileo, king of night vision, king of insight. Reboot Portfolio Circles are an effective and unique way for VC firms to provide ongoing support and professional development for the CEOs and the leaders inside their portfolio companies. With our Portfolio Circles, the Reboot team partners with you to identify the CEOs or the leaders you'd like to support, and we take care of the rest. Each group is led by a skilled Reboot coach and includes six to eight leaders from companies inside your portfolio in similar roles and stages in their journeys. We bring them all together to support each other in their personal and professional and leader development. Now hear from Evan, who is a participant in one of our portfolio circles. My name is Evan Liang. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Lean Data. Most of the other CEO groups I've been in are very business-focused, issues-focused. We're trying to solve problems together. And the Reboot Circle is very different in the sense that we talk about the issues, but more around kind of supporting each other. And it's not around problem-solving but more around the CEO's support from an emotional perspective. I think all of us need some sort of support group. You need friends and family. You can't do it all on yourself. There is a lot of stresses that come with the job. And having an avenue to uh, feel like you're not alone and get that emotional need that you might not be able to get from your team because you don't want to seem vulnerable as a CEO. So those would be the reasons I would say to check it out and to go in with an open mind and, and see for yourself if it's something that helps you. Overall, it's been a great experience. To learn more about Reboot Portfolio Circles, email us at portfoliocircles at reboot.io.